Well, good morning again. My name is Ryan, and I'm the pastor here. If I uh, snuck in a little bit late and didn't catch my introduction at the beginning of the service, and we're glad that you're here. And uh, this morning we'll be in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. Last week we started a new series for our winter-spring time, and uh, we're looking at the life of David, and we're asking how we might learn to live out of the grace of God for his glory as we look at David. And this morning we come to what might be the most familiar story of David, uh, that is the story of David and Goliath. And um, what I hope we get out of our time, though, is that we begin to see um, and maybe relook at a story that is familiar to us that is critical moving forward uh, for how we understand David and how we understand, more importantly, Jesus when he arrives in the New Testament. So that is, that is my aim. Um, let us give our attention, though, to the reading of God's Word this morning, found in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. We're going to read verses 1 to 11, and then I'm going to skip over and read 45 to 47. But we'll be taking the entire uh, chapter in our sermon this morning. Beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Socha, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Socha and Azekah is Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. <clears throat> There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. <clears throat> he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze uh, armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Turning over to verses 44 to 47. The, Philistines, the Philistine Goliath said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Let me pray for us and ask God, ask God to teach us his word this morning. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning, this time that we can gather together as your people, the grace that this is to us, that we would have your word even as we do this morning to read it, to study it, to hear from it, to hear from you. And so we pray now at this time that you would, by your spirit, open our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear things otherwise we could not, and that you would change us you would soften our hearts that we may see Jesus more clearly and to see him more beautiful and believable than, any, than ever before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to skip introductions this morning and jump in because we have a lot. And uh, if you're looking for an outline, we're going to look at three things out of this passage. And that is there's, there's a problem in the passage that we're going to look at first. There's uh, the promise of the passage that we're going to see, and then there's the hope or the power in the passage that we are going to see as well by way of understanding not just who David is, but who it is that David is ultimately pointing us to as God's anointed. So let's look at that first, the problem in the passage. Our story takes place about 13 to 14 miles west of Bethlehem, if you're looking at a map, in this valley called Allah. And on one side, as we read, of the valley stood a mountain of a man. And, and, and just by way of information, there's no other account like this in Scripture that gives this much detail to somebody else's, uh, to the enemy's armor, size, uh, all of that. And as you heard all those numbers, you're getting the picture of what this person really is. And that's, this person, as one commentator states, is simply a war machine. They are about six feet, or nine feet, six inches tall, according to uh, the measurements given. Uh, his armor alone is said to have weighed about 126 pounds. And he wielded a spear, a spear with uh, what amounts to about a 15-pound bowling ball at the end of it. From his youth, this man had known war. That's what he was for. On the other side, though, of this valley stands a boy named David. Uh, the youngest of eight brothers, as we saw last week. He was not a warrior. He had no armor or weapons to show, just this shirt. He didn't even own a sword or a shield, just a staff and a simple sling. His experience fighting went no further, as we see, than the fields as a shepherd at home. He had never faced another man in combat that we know of. And to make matters worse, at this point in time, it wasn't just his life that was on the line if he lost. It was the lives of all of Israel sitting around that valley watching this scene take place. So the question I have as we begin is, how did we get here? How, do, how did we get here? To be in this valley with this Goliath now facing off with this boy named David. Well, as we go through this series, we're going to be introducing uh, necessary, I think, context and information um, about, um, not just for Samuel, uh, not, not just David, but 
but the, the, the book and everything that we encounter. And so, um, by way of this account, it's important to understand its context. And this is going to take the entire first point, so just, yeah. Because understanding its context help us understand, helps us to understand what is actually going on and how we got here in the first place. As we said last week, 1 Samuel acts as a bridge between these two important time periods of the judges and now this, uh, the, the monarchy that, that is Israel having kings for themselves. And as we enter into this place where we see Philistines uh, in the land, we recognize as we come into 1 Samuel that Israel's been battling Philistines for a while. And what might not be common for you as you read 1 Samuel is to think, well, why are there Philistines in the land? Where did this, where'd this come from? Is this a problem? I guess maybe people just kind of come in at times and they have to defend themselves. And, and, but it's actually more than that. The problem with Philistines in the land is a problem that's been going on for generations that goes all the way back to Abraham. When, when God promised a land to Abraham, to his people, and then finally in the generations to pass, Abraham coming to Moses, where Moses would free his people from Egypt, from the slaves of the Egyptians, and he would free his people to, to go wander in the wilderness before he brought them where? Into this promised land. And just by way of summary... That generation is getting close to the land, and, the, and, and, and Moses sends in spies, and they come back from that land, and what do they tell them? What do they see? They see giants. And everybody is afraid, except for two people, Joshua and Caleb. Like, no, 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 we can do this. The Lord will fight for us. But no, the other people who outnumber Joshua and Caleb even Moses, get the crowd on their side and say, we cannot go in, do not send us in there. And this, this brings about a, a major issue in, in the life of Israel, which is God wants to just wipe out this generation and end it, sort of in, the, in his judgment. Moses pleads for them on his behalf, and he says, well, look, this generation will not enter the land. They will not enter my rest. They will stay out here until this generation dies off, until a new generation comes in faith and enters, enters this land. Thus, the book of Joshua. So Joshua is what? Leading God's people into this promised land. And two of the things that we need to keep in mind about this land is that God said what? I'm the one who's going to fight for you. All right, you've got to trust me. But the other thing we learn about this conquest is that Israel is to drive everybody out of the land. And this brings up a whole other issue, right? The conquest here in the Old Testament. And look, I'm, I'm not going to dive into that this morning. We don't have time. But I am more than happy and, and would long to talk with you about that if that is a question you have about Scripture or about Christianity in general. Like, why is this okay? That God would send in Jerusalem, Israel to wipe out all these people. And it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. So if you have that question, I would love to spend time with you talking about it. We don't have time this morning. But here's the thing you've got to know about this conquest. And this is what's hard is that given everything that had gone on in Israel's time, God's promise to take this land, God's choosing of Israel, for Israel to go into the land and conquer it by driving out all the people there was actually the mark of covenantal faithfulness to God. In other words, if you were, ask, if you were to ask a Jew at this point in time, what does it mean to be faithful 
Well, to be circumcised, follow the law, but to drive out the inhabitants of this land because God has given us this land and he has asked us to do this in a mark of faithfulness for him. So by contrast, to not do this for Israel, for this unique period of time, by the way, is to actually be a badge of faithlessness. So when you read through Joshua, right, you get these glimpses of of hope, of, of Israel being faithful. Consider Jericho, right? This is another one of those famous stories where God's people march around the city and blow horns and the walls come down. Do you need another example of what it means for God to fight for you? Then for you to do literally nothing, actually to look like fools, really, circling a building and blowing horns, for the Lord to fight for you as he's promised in this situation. Well, Israel gets that example. They go on and they try again at Ai and it doesn't really work that well. They forget that the battle is the Lord's and then the Lord has to remind them. And they, they kind of move forward again and trusting in God to fight his battles. And as you go through Joshua, it looks like things are working out the way that they're supposed to, except you get these statements. And these statements read, but there were still inhabitants in the land. There were still Canaanites in the land. There were still these people who they were supposed to drive out in the land. And the problem with that is that this is what goes on to haunt Israel throughout the judges. It's what brings them into this terrible, chaotic situation. But it's also what brings us to chapter 17, where you have this David and now this Philistine lining up for battle. It is a consequence of a much bigger problem that has gone on long before David and Israel and Saul ever showed up at this valley. That their inability to be faithful, to trust God, has led them to this place. And just by way of reminder, Deuteronomy 20, laws concerning warfare, this is what's been with Israel, at least since Moses, not before. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near the battle, the priests shall come forward and speak to the people, and they, sh- and they sh- and, and, excuse me, shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. And here's the key part. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. It's God who fights for Israel to give them the victory. Israel has to trust this. And in doing so, this is what faithfulness looks like. But as we know, Israel never fully remains faithful by driving out the inhabitants, even at the end of Joshua, um, when, when, the, when the land is given out to Israel. And this has caused problems. And it's why we are where we are. In chapter 17, verse 1. And as you read chapter 17, verse 1, you notice that this, this valley is what? It's near Judah. And if you're looking at a map, this is way far east from the, the sea, which is where the Philistines would have lived, which means that for the Philistines to get to Judah, this is basically a reversal of the conquest. 
that they have now given up this land that God had promised to them, which again is a mark of unfaithfulness by God's people. So what's the problem? I just said it. But you could say there are a lot of problems as we look at this text. But I want to suggest to you this morning, by way of this first point, that as we look at this and as we've heard this story, Goliath is not the problem. Goliath is really the symptom of a much bigger problem, which is a lack of faithfulness in Israel, marked out by trusting God to fight for them as he has promised. And depending on what reality you live in, if you're Israel at this point, right, you either see the real problem as the problem, or you see the symptom itself as the real problem. And right now, as we read through this text, right, Israel can only see the symptom of the problem, which is Goliath, this giant, and this has left them. In verse 11, look at it, please. It's one of the most important verses in the entire story. Dismayed and greatly afraid. Remember Deuteronomy 20. Do not be afraid, for I will go fight for you and give you the victory. As anyone with, or excuse me, as someone with a history of, of lower back problems, I've had to learn more than I thought uh, I'd ever learn about discs and vertebrae and L5, L4. <laughs> if those things don't mean anything to you, praise the Lord. Um, but one of the things I've learned is that the location of pain, right, the symptom, is not always the location of the problem. With nerve issues, you can have pain in your left calf, right, that is caused by a pinched nerve in your hips. You can have a headache, I've learned, that is caused by an issue with your foot that has its root and structural alignment in your spine. Which means that you can, you can take all the Tylenol you want to, but it's not going to deal with the root of the problem. You'll never actually get better. The location of pain is not always, right, the location of the problem. Goliath is the location of pain for Israel as we enter the scene. But he is not the problem. He is what they are afraid of, and understandably, the problem is actually in Israel themselves. It's in their hearts, where it's always been for all of us. Because right now, as we enter chapter, chapter 17, we read that Israel is dismayed and greatly afraid, and there isn't a trace, as we read, of godliness to be found anywhere. And that's really the, the point of the author You should feel you are in a spiritual desert longing for someone to show up with just an ounce of faithfulness in an effort to restore the spiritual sanity of a people who have lost their way. The taunting, right, the description, the defying of Israel's leaders, which is really the defying of Israel's God, should, should concern you. There should be a pit in your stomach as you're reading this. Where is the faithful one who would come out and deal with this? 
Yet day in and day out, for 40 days, we are told Goliath comes and he approaches the ranks of Israel's army and he defies them. And in so doing, Goliath is not just calling out the people of Israel, he's calling out Yahweh himself. He is saying, does your God exist? And if so, come and fight. Yet Israel does nothing. This is the problem in the passage. It's been a problem for a while, and that is there is little faithfulness in Israel at a moment when they need it most. Well, what happens? And this gets to the second point, which is the promise in the passage. What happens is God shows up as he promises to do. But he shows up, as we saw last week, in, in, in a place that not, very little of us, we, we wouldn't expect. By pulling somebody out of a sheep field to come and do something for Israel that they cannot do for themselves. To fight a battle that they cannot win. In the midst of all of Goliath shouting day in and day out, there was a boy tending sheep, we read, who was asked by his dad to run some sandwiches to his brothers at the front line. The boy's name is David. He's the first, and this is the first time that we hear from David at this point um, in, the entire, in Scripture. And as David is running supplies to the front lines, we get this detail, and it's the first breath of fresh air, verse 23. Look at it. Where David sort of inquires about what will happen for that person who defeats this giant. And then he says this, and David heard him. David heard him, to which he inquires, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's the first right response to come in the narrative at this point. It is a balm for our souls. In contrast, Israel sits dismayed and afraid with a king, Saul, whom they anointed, whom they they asked for to go out and fight their battles, who is doing nothing. And then finally, here he is, out of nowhere, this man, this boy named David who is not afraid. And why is he not afraid? And this is important. It's not that he necessarily has like this super faith gene that you need to to get. We'll talk about that later. The text is very clear about why he's not afraid and why he is doing what he's doing. It's because he is God's anointed. He's God's anointed. We go back last week, chapter 16, Verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And what does it say? And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. You remember, anointed in the Hebrew word is the word for Messiah, which we, where we get Messiah or Christ. And so the promise in the story is that God has not forgotten his people. And yet in their utter faithlessness, he has provided a savior for them, his anointed David. And the place where we are to see this the most is in David's interaction with Saul, who in verse 33 and 38 questions David's experience and whether David is actually equipped enough as a true warrior to which David replies, reading from verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and, and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And then Saul looks at David and says, go and the Lord be with you. Now many argue that this is actually the high watermark of the passage structurally as it shows the difference between Saul and David. 
One is stuck in the reality of this world where armor and experience wins battles, while one is living in the reality of God's economy where the battle belongs to who? It belongs to him. It belongs to God. The contrast could not be more stark. And that's the point of the story at this point. So David goes, but first Saul gives him his armor in verse 38, but it doesn't fit. And this scene here points to the upside downness of Saul's heart. He should be the one, right, going out there as king. But instead, what? He's giving his, giving his armor to a boy. I think we put people in jail for that today. This probably has, is the hardest point here to, 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 to see because we don't fully understand the idea of what it means to be God's anointed. See, it's not that David has faith and Saul doesn't. It's more complicated than that. It's about God choosing a deliverer for his people as his promise to them. And he has chosen David, not Saul. And why this is important is that we should be sensing that there is something very different about David in this story as God's anointed from ourselves too. That we should, we should hold up before we plug and play right, our name into this story as the one who might fight giants one day too. But that as God's anointed, there is something very different and unique about David in this time and space. That God is actually putting his spirit on someone to do something for his people that they cannot do for themselves. Which is embody faithfulness to fight a battle with a giant that no one else can fight. And the fact that God has raised up someone to do this, has raised up an anointed, that's the promise. That's the relief to the desperation that we feel as we read through this story as this giant defies Israel and Israel's God. That God would not remain silent. That he would not forget his promises to his people. That he would not leave them in the place that they are in utter despair. That he would actually provide somebody to do something for them that was, we see they, they, they can't do for themselves. And we are about to see right, what this promise looks like, the fruit of its promise as David enters the battlefield with no armor or sword and just a sling with five stones. This is the promise that God would provide an anointed. But it's not just providing an anointed, it's actually what the anointed will do for his people. That he will do something for them that they cannot do for themselves. That's what it means for God to, have, to raise up his anointed. But this gets to the power of the passage or the hope in the passage and that is, as God's anointed, as we continue to th- through the story, what's, true for, what's going to be true for David is also going to be true for Israel. Let me say that again. What's going to be true for David as he goes to fight this giant and as he is victorious, spoiler alert, it's also going to be true for Israel too. And this becomes our hope, if nothing else. In other words, the power is what the anointed does for Israel, and the anointed makes you victorious in the face of an enemy that you cannot fight nor defeat. In verse 41, David approaches Goliath, to which Goliath refers to young David as a stick, calling David a dog, or or referring to himself as a dog, that, that they would throw sticks at him. But David responds with verse 45 to 47, we read it earlier, where David 
tells Goliath what is about to happen, right? It is the embodiment of faithfulness that this battle is the Lord's, that he will give you into our hand. That's Deuteronomy 20. And as Eugene Peterson writes about this, David is the only one in touch with reality that day in the Valley of Elah. And by verse 49, Goliath is dead. Like, with all that's gone on before this, there is, there is little detail about this. Like, it's, it's over in a blink of an eye. David approaches, takes a stone, it sinks into the forehead of this giant, which means it probably broke through his skull, and the giant falls flat, dead. David goes over and cuts his head off. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine. <laughs> with a, that's it, with a sling and with a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Why say that? Why say that? Because the battle doesn't belong to David. It belongs to the Lord. David then goes over to Goliath and he cuts off his head. Verse 51b says, When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. All right, pretty, pretty big turn of events from where we were back in verse 11 where Israel was dismayed and greatly afraid, right? This is the second time we've come across this word champion, by the way, when it refers to Goliath. And Tim Chester in his commentary argues that this word literally means, right, the, the man of the between. The man of the between. That is, Goliath, as the Philistine champion, right, he stands between what? The Philistines and Israel, and what he's talking about there is, is a type of fighting that, that was known as representative fighting. That as Goliath goes forward, whatever happens to him happens to the Philistines, happens to those who he stands between, or is the one in, in between. That if he wins this battle, so, does, so do the rest of the Philistines. If he loses this battle, so do the rest of the Philistines. He is their representative. What is true for him is also true for those he represents. That's what it means to be the champion. And so when David steps in this ring, so to speak, although we don't get that label on him, he, it's the same thing is true. He is entering the space where he is becoming the champion, as it were, for Israel, the man who is of the between. David is representing Israel as God's anointed. He is standing between Israel and between its foe that whatever happens to David happens to them. And so when we understand that and we see that, we, we recognize then what the real power of this passage is, is that as David defeats this Goliath, and is victorious, who else is victorious as well? Israel. And not just King Saul, right? Not just the important people, but all the people cowering in fear on the sidelines who never picked up a sword, right? Who, who perhaps aren't even there that day, who did nothing to warrant the victory of the battle. That's what it means to have a champion. And what I love about this, this story that, that is often missed, especially if you're looking at it, you know, on a felt board as a kid in Sunday school back in the day, is what happens to Israel at the end? What do they do? They, act, they change. 
they, sent, they, they run off in the direction of the Philistines. Now, if we don't understand the context of this, we don't understand what that is. What is it? We labored on it in the first point. It's faithfulness. It's what faithfulness looks like for God's people this time. They drove their enemy out of the land. Why? Because of their new status as victorious people. Because of their anointed. Because of David. That someone qualified would stand between them and fight the battle that they could not fight. So the power in the passage. What does this mean for us then as we leave here? We look at the problem, the promise, the power, the hope that's in this passage as we try to understand what's going on with David and Israel in its context. What does this mean for us with the time we have remaining? I want to look at one thing here. As we mentioned, we are calling this series The Life of David, learning to live out of God's grace for his glory. And the grace that we are learning to live out of, as far as this text is concerned, is the, is the promise and is the power of this story. But before we do that, we have got to know who we are in that story. All right, so as we look at this, let's go ahead and take the big one off the table. We're not David. And that perhaps removes a lot of confusion for us, and maybe for you, as we try to understand how to apply this story. We're not David. We're not God's anointed in this context. So then who are we? And as often said, whenever we look at the Old Testament, 11 times out of 10, you're usually Israel. And so as we look at this text, yeah, we're the ones who are dismayed and greatly afraid who need a champion to fight for them in a battle that they cannot fight for themselves. We are the ones who need a man of the what between. And the promise for us is that we have one. That's our promise. And it's not David, right? It's who David points to, ultimately. Who is what? Jesus Christ. The promise is that we have one in Jesus, God's Son, His true anointed, See, Jesus is not just a better Joshua or a better Caleb. He's not just a better David even. He is our true champion. The one who will, upon his own anointing, in, his, in, in the early parts of the Gospels, when the Holy Spirit descends on him, what happens to Jesus? He gets sent out, what, into the wilderness for, what, 40 days? Where he is tested by another giant, if you will, which is Satan himself. The fight of battle... Everyone up to this point, including our father, Adam, has failed to fight. But who prevails in being the faithful one all the way to where that battle would take him, which is a cross. And on that cross, right, your champion, Jesus, did something for you that what? You could not do for yourself. He satisfied the penalty for your sin, the wrath of God as a consequence that you could never pay. And he defeated our greatest enemy, which is death, upon his resurrection. And in so doing, what became true for him becomes true for you. As you believe in this champion, this is the power of the cross for us. 
See, until you see Jesus as a better David, you will not understand the promise and the power that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how the Old Testament helps us understand what's going on in the New Testament when we get there. A promise, though, and a power that comes to us as grace. Right? As people who did nothing to deserve this victory over our sin and death, but who have been given it, what? Through Christ. And so the question becomes, like, how does that change you then? What does covenantal faithfulness look like to God's people today? And just, it's not to run out there and defeat your enemies. Right? What does that look like today? How does this change you? How is it changing you? How are you learning to live out of the grace of God's glory or or uh, of God's grace for his glory in this place and time? That That is your impending question, Christian. Because what's true about grace is that it meets us wherever we are in life, no matter how far outside of grace we think we are, no matter what we've done, No matter who we are, but no matter how close we think we are to God, too, even in our self-righteousness, grace can still reach you there, and you still need it. And no matter where you are, though, grace can get to you. But the thing about grace is it never leaves us there. For for us as Christians, and especially we joke about being Reformed, right, that we're saved by grace, and you you might throw in a frozen chosen every now and then just for, for laughs, which is not really that funny, but we still do it. If, if, you are, if you would say you've experienced grace and that's not changed you, I would, I would say to you, you've not experienced grace. Grace meets you where you are. It never leaves us where we are. Go back to the end of the story. What does David's victory for his people do? Do they sit on their hands? Do they, do they what, what happens? They move into what it looks like to be God's people in the ways that God has called them them to be his people. And what does that look like? That is a great question for small groups tonight. But just if I could scratch the surface, I think it begins to look like grace leading us into deeper repentance, deeper forgiveness towards others. I think grace leads us into, into deeper mourning of our sin, which, which, which leads to what? A deeper hunger and thirst for righteousness that is not in us. Right? Grace leads us to a deeper desire to love those not like us. Grace leads to a deeper patience with those who frustrate you. More sympathetic I could not be. But this is what the gospel does in us It leads us to these things, a deeper humility even, because on your best day, you and I, we still needed a champion. And the good news for us this morning is that we got one. We have one. And Jesus Christ, the man of the in-between. So my hope as we leave here this morning and as we continue to move forward in the life of David Looking and all, we will always be looking back to this account in some, some shape or form. But that we would begin to, to, to know in fresh ways what it means to live out of God's grace for us. As Jesus is our champion for us, who goes to fight a battle for us that we cannot fight on our own.
that that, that would, that grace then would, would sink deep into our hearts, changing us that we might be God's people as he, he has called us to be in this time and place. For a gospel that is not able to do that is no gospel. And it brings us back to the beginning as, as Goliath comes to those front lines and calls out Israel's right, uh, officials and calls out anybody to come and fight and defies Israel, defies God's name. Jesus has made a declaration about that once and for all in his death and his resurrection. And in, and in him as, 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 as our champion, now that as we, are, we are under his allegiance, right, he is our king, he is the one who gives us our status. He's the one that, that makes us clean before God himself. There is no fear. I want to say no excuses even for what God can and can't do in you as his people. That is my prayer for us. as We begin to continue to take in what it means to learn to live out of this grace that God has given us in Christ for his glory. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time in your word, a familiar story perhaps to many, but its depths we can never plunder. We pray that as we look at it and we refresh our memories of it and see new things in it perhaps, but we're reminded hopefully of of what what is always true, that you are the one who fights for his people. You're the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And this is an act of grace on your behalf. We don't deserve this. Israel doesn't deserve this. But in your love and kindness, you have done this for us. And so we say amen as your people. We receive it humbly, knowing that there's nothing about us that says uh, you merited this. Therefore, go. We deserve to be like these Philistines, a people who, whose heart is far from you. But by your grace, you have brought us near. You have made us your own. And so we pray that you would continue that work of changing us through your grace, that we may learn to be the people you have called us to be in this place and time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.